Welcome to the Deep Blue On My Doorstep podcast. I'm Tracy Ainsworth from the University of New South Wales. In this podcast series, we will talk to marine experts about the marine environments that we have right on our doorsteps and what we can do to help conserve and protect these blue spaces. Ian Southers, Professor in Biological Earth and Environmental Sciences at the University of New South Wales. Uh, you work at the Sydney Institute for Marine Science, which is where you're talking to us from today. Welcome, Ian, and thank you so much for joining us and um, for finishing off our series, Deep Blue on My Doorstep podcast. Uh, we're going to be talking to you a lot about the big picture for our blue spaces, what ties everything together, what the future holds. But we're also going to be talking about your career on the East Australia Current and I guess celebrating this ocean current because it what it's what ties us all together, ties us to the blue spaces that we have. It does. It is the great unifier of all Australians and New Zealanders is uh, the EAC. There you it go. Really Brings us together even with New Zealanders. Today we also have Nathan with us who's our podcast uh, expert, tech guy, audio, uh, who's sat through all of these podcasts with us and is going to jump in and say hi every now and then. Yeah, it's been great to be here. Uh, don't forget the Tasmanians as well. <laughs> we can forget the Tasmanians, can we, Ian? That's right. Well, it does unique, you link us, then the EAC, Australia, with, with Tasmania and New Zealand and, of course, the Southern Ocean. But um, it is a remarkable river of warm water that unites us all and um, even links us up with, um, I think one of the politicians got under this, that when they spoke about microplastics and so on, that we're all just one, aren't we? And um, in part, they're right, of course, because yeah. we all are, we all share molecules of water with our ourselves, our bodies and the, and the ocean. But um, we really do have something that is uh, certainly for a number of years, the East Australian currents close by us, is really Australian. And it, the plankton is Australian, the fish are Australian. Um, it's, it's warming and ocean acidification is very Australian. So um, it, it, we can claim it for a while. Uh, it is ours. And it's um, something that we need to treasure. I'm sitting here sipping some water and, um, you know, about 50%, certainly during the drought, at the very least, 50% of our water, you can thank the East Australian current. Um, we can thank it for those East Coast lows and those storms, but um, you can thank when you eat your tuna fish sandwich. Uh, if it's been harvested as skipjack from the East Coast of Australia, you can thank the East Australian current. That, that's awesome. So it is definitely part of our national identity and not just because of really cool scenes in Finding Nemo. Brings us all together. Yeah. So you think this is a current that should be celebrated? Oh, we, we should definitely celebrate it. Um, I think it's because, I mean, and it's underrated, you know, Australians are very much a, a, a terrestrial nation. We are, you know, the, you know, the man from Snowy River, um, it's Mulga Bill's bicycle and, and, and Banjo Patterson are very terrestrial sort of icons of Australian and Australian culture. And it was really ironically um, Pixar and, and Finding Nemo that um, brought to us that the reality, this is very much part of Australia as well. And I really see that in actually in my you know lifetime, and I'm getting on a little <laughs> bit, is that um, we will have many, many more Australians engaged with the ocean, with the continental shelf, for jobs, for food, for security, um, much more than we've ever done before. Yeah. Well, you know, deep water fishing, fishing off um, the coast, surfing, all these things we love to go do. We love to go to the beach when the water's nice and warm. 
that's all all thanks to the EAC. Um, in this series, we've talked about seabirds, sharks, turtles. Um, again, these are all the things that we love, but they they need the EAC as well. Yeah, it's funny. Um, many people uh, now that they know that I dabble in the East Australian current, um, they 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 curse me for their <laughs> during their January Christmas holidays. They want to go for a swim in the nice warm ocean water, and it is bitterly cold in January, in the middle of summer. Nice. And they say it's your rotten Easter Stream <laughs> current that's driven cold upwelling and made the water bitterly cold and creating habitats for great white shark. And I say, yep. Yeah, welcome to the Eastern <laughs> Park. <laughs> yep. So for anyone out there, when you're out on the beach and it's too cold in January, you're going to have to think of Professor Ian Sullins from well, UNSW. just the EAC. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ian, you've been working along our coast for quite a long time. Your PhD took you to Canada. You worked in Norway. You came back home, back to Australia. Was it the draw of the current as well as being back home that, that brought you back and kept you here? Yeah, good question. Because um, I say you get a few grey hairs, you do reflect on those very exciting times when you're a young university student and you're meeting cool people and you're suddenly broken out of that high school sort of um, constraint and suddenly find out who you are in, as a person and with all, you know, some features, maybe not what you would like of yourself. But um, anyway, you find people that welcome you and uh, then you go away because for a whole bunch of reasons you need to move away especially in the, in the world of science doesn't matter what science you're in or even arts or, or anything else you need to move to broaden your horizons and your way of thinking so as you say i went to canada and then i knew i needed to go to norway because that was um where fisheries science began and it's always cool to go back to where fisheries culture is so strong but it was the lure of the gum leaf that was um australia that i wanted to come back to I'd hear an Australian accent, and uh, even though I, by then, after nearly 10 years, I had a very um, Canadian accent, yeah. I, I, and it still comes out occasionally when I get nervous, but, um, <laughs> but I, I uh, yeah, I really missed Australia. My parents were getting a little bit older. I had um, young uh, nieces that were getting older and growing up, and they never knew their Uncle Ian, yeah. so um, I knew it was time to come back. Um, my mum uh, did a little trick. She sent, um, you know, letters. I used to write letters in those days, and... Um, in wrapped inside was a little gum leaf and uh she said oh. put this gum leaf in the ashtray and put a match to it and so you smelt the smoke coming off a smoldering gum leaf and immediately and the tears start to oh. fill up and because all those memories so that's what i i came home um but in doing so i also dragged with me a canadian wife who loves uh snow and ice yeah. and maple leaves and maple sugar so um I have always respect the fact that she gave up that love of her country to come to Australia with me and uh, and enjoy you know this this crazy um, life of chasing the East Australian current. Nice, um, that that was quite a good trick your mum played. I have to say, I'm going to remember that when my kids are older. They already talk about going and living off overseas, so I'm going to pull that out when they don't come back home. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's a it's a part because you know. Cub Scouts or even just, um, and of course, last summer, who can forget that we had so much smoke all over Sydney um, and it wasn't perhaps such a nice experience, but you got that smell of smoldering uh, eucalyptus. Normally it's a, it's, a, it's a pleasant experience of being around a fire and trying to keep warm. Um, so, yeah, it's a very powerful memory that goes right back into your brain immediately. Yeah. 
Um, you mentioned before you've been doing lots of research into the East Australia current and understanding what's happening out in our ocean along our entire coastline. One of the things in your research is that you've shown the EAC is accelerating. Yeah. What What does that mean? Yeah. Sometimes we like to use the word strengthening, but accelerating is perfectly good. It means it's changing its velocity. So it's um, it's funny. This was predicted back in the 70s quite remarkably because they realised that the winds in the Southern Ocean were increasing because the planet was starting to warm because of greenhouse gases. And the, the, the winds go from west to east in the Southern Hemisphere, and they push um, the bottom of this huge South Pacific gyre, which is a massive you know, body of water between South America and Australia and topped by the equator. And it uh, goes in a big sort of anti-clockwise direction and so uh, the East Australian current is simply, you know, the western side, the left-hand side of this great gyre, South Pacific gyre. You can imagine, therefore, those winds that they predicted in the Southern Ocean spinning up that gyre, forcing that Southern Ocean, pushing it and pushing it and pushing it, or stroking it, you know, yeah. getting it to spin up. And so it drives up the currents along the, uh, the west coast of South America, the, you know, the Humboldt currents, um, and then it comes up to um, off the top of South America and then drives the South Equatorial Current right across the equator. And it takes nearly two years to make that journey across the equator. And it reaches New Caledonia and comes in between that, those, those islands and, and splits. A little one goes up along the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, it's called the Huey mm -hmm. Current, H-I-R-I. -I. And not many people know that. I, I didn't know it for a while. <laughs> and then... And that the rest of it then obviously turns left and forms to form the East Australian Current, and it uh, fills up the the uh, Southern Coral Sea with this uh, warm and not so salty water, um, but it's warm, it's buoyant, and then it begins to flow out of the bottom there, almost like the bottom of a funnel, to flow down really strongly past Brisbane. Um, along when I say past Brisbane, it's actually out on the edge of the continental shelf, about 40 kilometres offshore. And this is, you know, strong jet of warm water that flows down uh, along northern New South Wales, reaches central New South Wales. And it, and as, I'm sorry to answer your question, mm -hmm. it, that flow is strengthening because of those winds in the Southern Ocean that mm -hmm. they predicted, they forecast, expected, um, you know, nearly 50 years ago. Um, and now we're seeing it. It's, it's, it's speeding up faster. And the signature, the temperature and salt, characterizes the southern coral sea is now being is, is, is we're seeing it it's being manifest in the waters of sydney and, and of eden and of course of hobart that's amazing what does it mean for how much we rely on the eac and how much these different e ecosystems along the coast are they affected by this strengthening yes well the main uh outcome is um, the fact that warmer water is now coming down because the planet is warming and the oceans are absorbing um, that extra heat and carbon dioxide, that um, because of that, the, there's warmer uh, water. Now it's, it's a theory off Sydney, there's warm water off Eden, and it's roughly, you know, maybe it's, um, recent figures haven't been updated, but it's roughly uh, shifted the temperatures that would be typically received off Sydney have now been shunted 400 kilometres south to off Eden. And the temperatures and waters that are off Eden are now being shunted down to Kur off Hobart. So we're talking at the moment, you know, only degree temperatures of one or two degrees. 
which is actually a lot in, in the world of, of oceanography and, and water. But uh, some of us sitting in the in the armchair back home saying, well, if my cup of tea is one or two degrees warmer, you hardly notice it, right? Yeah. What's the effect of this um, a strength in the East Australian current? And I mentioned the, the rising temperature, that it really affects, say, a, a fish or a lobster by an increase in its temperature by 10 or 20%. So imagine if we, you or I, had an increase in temperature of 10 or 20%, then in finished terms, that becomes scary for our physiology. Yeah, that's quite it's substantial. Also, yeah. It also enables different animals now to uh, move for the south and not just be transported, but now be able to breed, reproduce, and have a self-sustaining population. And I'm sure some of your other speakers may have spoken about how sea urchins that occurred off Sydney but they didn't have, it wasn't never warm enough. Um, the critical temperature was 12 degrees Celsius off Hobart. But that um, threshold was passed about 10 years ago or more. And now um, they, the urchins that were could only occur off Sydney and maybe as far south as Eden can now occur uh, off Hobart. And there they found um, beautiful, tall, luxuriant kelp forests that yeah. we could only dream of. And those urchins uh, got stuck into that, which is um, one of the... The most, the saddest, the strongest economic uh, examples that we've got so far of the impact of this strengthening East Australian current is in the for the island of Tasmania, who is so dependent upon lobster and, and, and abalone and, and kelp forests um, that's now gone, or it's 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 vastly impacted uh, hugely. It's a two hundred million dollar a year industry, and it's now only a fraction of that, which for a small island economy has huge ramifications. Yeah, that's um, that's quite incredible because that's what people in Tassie are seeing right in front of them. You know, those kelp forests are really close to the shorelines and, like you said, these massive kelp forests um, gone in a matter of a decade. But we've known, you said, for 50 years that this was something that was going to happen. Um, Australia also has this incredible, the Great Southern Reef, so this temperate region of massive diversity and um, a unique place in the in the planet. And um, it's something I think we've pretty only recently started to appreciate, but at the same time we're just starting to appreciate what it is. It's, it's being impacted and it's changing. Yeah. Uh, um, the, the Great Southern Reef is something that you know, many Australians haven't heard of, and I guess some of your other speakers may have mentioned it. But for me, it really uh, that paper came out in 2015 to point out how productive kelp forests were, their value that they give to the uh, small rural economies of, of um, the, the, the coastal economies all around southern Australia, right from um, northern New South Wales down to Tasmania, across the Great Australian Bight to, to West Australia. Um, it's something uh, like $10 billion a year is valued for all the fishing and ecotourism uh, that we get benefit from that. And now that is fundamentally changing. You know, um, there's some other interesting things that, that has come from a strengthening East Australian current. It's not just all, um, well, it's, it's changed. <laughs> Whether it's bad news, I can't say. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the Tasmanians, uh, if you speak to any of the people in their fishing boats, they love it because there's now uh, yellowtail kingfish, this magnificent, gorgeous, pasty fish <laughs> that is now in their waters. Yeah. Um, I call it the, you know, the, the yellowtail kingy is equivalent to fish chocolate. Um, <laughs> it's a magnificent fish. It, it eats like a pig. It grows like a weed. You couldn't believe it. It's, sat, and it's such a fast-biting fish. 
Yeah. Um, it's a lovely animal and it's now in Tasmanian waters and they are, um, enjoy, well, this fishing yep. community are enjoying it. And pink snapper, that beautiful uh, pagrosauratus, that lovely pink uh, sapphire speckled fish is yeah. now appearing in big numbers, um, surprising people. And again, they are, are harvesting it. Um, so it, we're looking at changed ecosystems. Yeah. So the kelp forests are often gone. Um, the sea urchins have arrived. The snapper eat some of the sea urchins if they can get them. Um, and here we are sort of, you know, this changing dynamic, trying to keep the abalone and lobster fishing going um, because you've got seals there. It's just, um, it's this mix. And we everything is such dynamic change that for us as scientists to say, well, this led to this, which is causing this, and in 10 years' time, it's really hard because nothing has settled down yet. It's it's all bouncing around. You've got, let alone seasons, but then you've got this, the ecosystems are resonating and changing. Yeah. Do we know how long this strengthening is going to continue for? Uh, it will continue <laughs> to build and strengthen for the decades to come until we um, uh, finally wean ourselves off burning fossil fuels and uh, even just burning natural gas which thought was tamer and better but you read about how much methane is released to the atmosphere with when you um, tap into natural gas and methane is 83 times more powerful than carbon dioxide to retaining the sun's heat um, I was staggered to learn that and yeah. some of these natural gas wells because they've got leaks and because gas is when you're pulling out of the ground it's kind of cheap it's just spewing out this um, unburnt methane into the atmosphere. Uh, so, yeah, we need to definitely uh, find alternative methods of, of getting power. And we are. You know, it's yeah. really exciting. Some of the changes that are happening now, the technologies, we're really on the cusp of so much danger and risk, but also the cusp of so much exciting and good. Um, and we just need to push it more towards the exciting and good side of the equation. That's um, a great message for the young listeners out there that it's, it is an era of a lot of change and um, things happening in our blue spaces that we, we don't necessarily want to happen. But with that comes, like you said, that opportunity to, to, do, to do better. Um, you do a lot of research on plankton as well. You talk a lot about fish, but plankton is um, kind of captured your heart, hasn't it? It has. Yeah. Yeah. So um, every, uh, there's what, 33 animal phyla on planet, that is, you know, big uh, animal kingdoms, big classifications, chunks of life, uh, 33 these big, uh, and there's 32 of them are found in plankton. It's yeah. really diverse. It's beautiful. Um, and it's, um, it's, it's all mostly all microscopic, not totally. You've got jellyfish and, and krill and so on, but uh, really it's just amazing diversity. And so in, when you dive into that beautiful crystal clear water, um, <laughs> you have all this plankton that's stuck in your hair, or oh, little tiny bits of it <laughs> occasionally stuck in your hair or your swimsuit. And, and, and you know, there's um, in that plankton, remember, there's also about a, a million bacteria per milliliter of seawater, um, or half a million to a million. You, you're the, you're the, 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 the microbiologist. <laughs> but um, it's a really, this is only kind of revealed in the last uh, kind of 20 years, yeah. realised such diversity of bacteria, let alone all the copepods and all the diatoms and the plants and the animals, yeah. single-celled plants that um, 
and, and the plankton. And and I guess to really get your listeners' attention, every mm-hmm. second breath you take, you can thank the oceans, these ecosystem services that we get for free. And imagine if you had to pay for every lungful of air. You know, yeah. what would you pay? A dollar? Uh, less, a lot less than that. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I don't know. COVID situation. I'm on a free trial. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I like my lungfuls of air. And yeah. um, every second one, I tend to really thank uh, the environment and it, usually from the ocean. That all that phytoplankton, the algae, the single cell mm. plants of the ocean, are taking in our carbon dioxide and using photosynthesis and releasing oxygen. And in doing so, you know, these nice little tasty plant morsels that then little tiny cookie pods, which are tiny little uh, crustaceans, small little shrimps, they eat that up and they convert that into protein. And then these little small bait fish that I find also fascinating, <laughs> fascinating like sardines and, and uh, what we call uh, yellowtail scad or yakka, um, they scoop up the zooplankton and then nice big tuna and those yellowtail kingfish, they come and eat those sardines and, and yakka and uh, ends up on, a, on the on the table occasionally. So the cycle of life is uh, really yeah. there in the plankton. The plankton just I find remarkable, um, and it's such an ecosystem that is not structured by trees and rocks and soil, but it's just in this sort of clear medium of water and a fantastic volume, 70% of the surface is habitat for plankton. So and they've had you know, hundreds of millions of years to evolve and adapt and, and cope. And um, it's now, it's is part of our resource and really part of our future. That if we don't um, really understand the plankton, then we can't really manage our own growth and population and, and how we uh, deal with the environment um, at sea or even on land. Uh, the plankton is quite remarkable. You've spoken about the East Australian current, uh, coastlines, plankton, all the way from the water through to restaurant plate. What what is it? When do you when did you first feel that affinity to know so much about the ocean? Do you remember what inspired you to take this journey in your life? All these ocean voyages. Yeah, um, I guess when I was a teenager, I was a bit of a fish head. Yeah. I just like to go fishing. I like to keep tanks of fish. Started fish off head, I think, is a technical term we use in science. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you're a surfer, we call you a waxhead. Yeah, you're exactly. In, if you're into fish, then you're a fish head. And um, I was definitely a fish head. Um, just loved, I think, I, because I could see personalities and expressions and traits and all these different species of fish. And even within monks, my, when I was a 10-year-old, these little goldfish that I kept. But then I graduated, obviously, to um, to big, fan, you know, to tropical fish like Oscars and all their territoriality and their their courtship, and you'd see a splash of water, you know, go out under the floor in the living room, and and then I um, stepped up into marine fish. And I think it was that point I was in at this very influential point in my life, was second year university, where um, people from in those days the CSIRO Marine Lab was based out of Cronulla here in, in southern Sydney. And there's a lady there, um, Pauline, who brought along a bucket of fresh zooplankton. And that's, I still remember looking down the microscope and looking at her with with open eyes and my jaw kind of dropped. (laughs) Um, I had no idea. I really had no idea. And um, 
then I found these same little uh, crustaceans, little copepods in my own marine fish tank. And yeah. my supervisor said, well, they're part of the whole ecology ecosystem within your tank to keep it healthy. Yeah. Um, and that's when I think the light started to come on. But then as you, as I finished up that um, my third and fourth year, you're thinking, well, you know, what next? And um, I, I credit my dad with this comment. I don't know if he actually said the exact words, but it mm-hmm. comes to the effect of, well, this marine biology is all very well, but when are you going to get a real job? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you. Every marine scientist has heard that. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, because I was young and naive and I just shrugged and thought, well, you know, she'll be right. Yeah. Um, and away I went. And I bumped into the Canadian um, and I knew that I wanted to, Canada was really big into fisheries research. You know, the you know, Canadian Journal of Fishing and Aquatic Sciences is a great scientific journal yeah. that the Canadian uh, government had supported. And so I um, I knew going to Canada would be a, a smart move and, hey, I wanted to travel. So I got that and um, I was working more on fish than I was in plankton, but I realized that um, the really interesting bits would be dealing with um, going, you know, marine fish. And for, to do that, it's, it's tough to get into. It was all the maths that's involved and, and forecasting and fishery science, it's very mathematical. And I wasn't strong at mathematics, <laughs> to say the least. So, um, but plankton was a good niche. And I remembered that what Pauline had shown me back in my second year lab. So um, I went to Dalhousie on the east coast of Canada and they had ships that were just devoted to understanding those drivers of their fishery. And that was through plankton. And it's in the plankton that I found these little baby larval fish. Um, so there's big, magnificent Atlantic cod as, as, big as, as big as I am, yeah. as adults, you know, spew out millions of eggs in each spawning bout over Brown's Bank, just off the coast of Halifax there. And then these little tiny larvae that are that hatch out at uh, 2.8, three millimeters long, and then they grow and grow. Um, they're about sort of uh, 20 millimeters long by the end of the summer, and they reach sort of uh, 20 centimeters long by the end of the first year. And if they can dodge the seals, then um, after one year they now will grow and join the fishery. And um, what a what a fishery that was huh, up until nice. up until the night late 19. 19, about, about 1990, yeah. when the moratorium came and the collapse of the Canadian cod. I always feel guilty. My PhD, I must have caught about, I don't know, 10,000 baby <laughs> cod, which sounds like a huge number. Um, remember, these baby cod are dying at 10 or 20% per day so um, yeah. through natural causes. So, and I was trying to understand those natural causes so we could forecast better. But I always felt a bit guilty about that. <laughs> All those ones that went into jars. <laughs> they did. They did, and yeah. um, I'm still actually uh, digging into those data sets even, uh, you know, 30 years later. It's um, it's quite an interesting exercise. And, of course, my supervisor is uh, – my PhD supervisor has just retired himself, so uh, we still keep in contact. And um, he's, just, he's witnessed massive changes in the ecosystem off the east coast of Canada. Um, uh, for different reasons, we're seeing massive changes that are starting to appear off the east coast of Australia. And so it's um, sometimes with grey hair, it's interesting uh, to actually see the changes that are happening and to understand um, if they're scary changes or they're just yeah. natural changes, um, and uh, it's and why. 
and what can we do about it if we if we want to do something about it can we um, learn anything from what happened in canada in that fishery and is there, there lessons that we can apply as things are changing here even with different causes yeah um good question um you know the the human um the human condition is not good to listening to science and the human condition is not good to looking at history either. Uh, we tend to repeat it. But um, yes, there are many lessons. How we manage a fishery uh, cost effectively. You know, you don't want to just burden it with all kinds of uh, bureaucracy and science and rules and regulations. I, I, I get that. But um, there is definitely ways that we could do it better. And we'll have to. Yeah. Um, in fact, I think it's quite exciting, uh, Tracy, for some of the possibilities for the future. So. The lessons from that were that the um, that traditional methods uh, couldn't keep up with the changing technology and the improving knowledge that the that those fishermen had, and so therefore a day spent at sea was far more effective um, in the 1990s than it was back in the 1960s. So um, now we've got uh, we're looking at this this new environment and we increasing demand for fish and to feed a, a growing planetary population we need to really uh, better manage the continental shelf. That is our new frontier. That's our new um, farmland, our new, um, uh, where we, because remember that when the settlers first came to Australia, they came in with guns and sheep and they chopped down trees and they grew paddocks and to put in pasture and all that kind of stuff. So in some ways, a little less dramatically, we need to put in kinds of infrastructure to be able to, um, manage our fishery and to improve the survival of those little larval fish. So rather than losing, you know, 10 or 20% per day when they're first uh, spawned by mum and dad fish, maybe that we'd only lose um, sort of nine or 19% per day. And when you've got billions of eggs, that comes out as a big number yeah. for future fisheries. And so that's the sort of thing that we're looking at in how we can improve the natural production of fish. We can just nudge it, nurture it a little better. Um, and so we can still have our, you know, what is it? I keep our fish and have it too. Nice. You you mentioned fishermen and their, their knowledge of what they're catching out in the ocean um, and their involvement in um, in the fishery. Uh, is building those relationships between science, fishermen and government, is it, is it a challenge? Wow, Tracy, you're asking these great questions. <laughs> yes, it's a huge challenge, and um, but it's it's such a lack, and it always has been a lack. And I squirm as a scientist that I haven't spent more time chatting to fishing communities, fishing captains, because they see it, and what and they're and they're really smart because they've got to deal with you know computers and satellite images and drive ships and navigate and deal with price. And, and fluctuations and landings and rules and regulations, it's, it's quite complicated and they do it really well. I don't know how they can, you know, some is a bit overwhelming. So to talk to them is really eye-opening. And I always relish the, the privilege that is when I get to chat to these guys because I know I'm humbled. They know so much more than I do, um, but they give me the respect because I've got a, I've written a PhD thesis on Atlantic cod. But um, so we, do need to far better. I think that's one of the great, that's one of the biggest problems 
we've got to so we don't go down the path of that you know east coast of canada cod collapse was is to just chat more to the fishing communities not just um the person that drives the boat but the guys in the deck and the person back in the in the fish co-op where they deal with the with the fish and their and how many their weights and the sizes because they get to see jeepers these fish are coming in a bit smaller this time of year or compared to last year or they've got a lot more spots and dots they don't look they look a bit skinny all that kind of stuff um because they see fish all the time they get to see stuff that you or i might just go yeah it's a fish so what so um I think talking to them and seeing what they've got, and I feel, uh, I say this, but I feel bad I haven't done much about it just because um, based in Sydney or, um, and, you know, I've got to prepare for tomorrow's lectures and I really need to just spend more time seeing what, asking about what they see. Um, you've got this incredible experience along the coast and in the water and knowledge all the way from the ocean through to the fish. Um, for people to get involved in, in what you do and learn more about your research and, and make those connections, how can they do that? Yeah. Um, so there are these days, of course, there are um, much better ways with the with with this multimedia. You can um, look at follow um, you and other people with, with with on Twitter and on Facebook to learn what's actually happening and when you can get to meet people when they have um, uh, festivals and celebrations by the sea. But I think that's only start of it. You really need to get your credentials so that you can talk the talk, and to do that. You need to have the courage to, you know, pack up your bags and go to one of the, any of the universities um, around the coast just to learn about how to identify those plankton, um, what is important in terms of their, their DNA and their cells and their, the bacteria that they interact with, and then um, how does that then translate into a fishery and the economics and you've got climate. When you've got that ground, it sounds like a lot, but over, you know, three years, and it's a hell of a ride, it's a great time, um, then three years, then maybe you could um, even do an honours year, which helps you do a little bit of a research and teaching at the same time. It's a, it's a mix and match. It's kind of fun. And then you're in great shape to actually, you've got some, you probably don't realise it, but you've got all, especially from your background you had as a kid with your parents, now you bring that in with this bit of training you've had at university. Then you can go back to the, to the society or to the boats um, or to Canberra um, to actually um, make the place a better place, make, make things work better, to improve the communication. You know, we, we, we don't communicate very well as humans. We, we, we read Twitter casts and so on, but we don't actually uh, communicate. And to do that, um, you often have to um, do it, you know, personally, either by like a video link like this, or we actually, um, uh, you know, sit around a campfire on a field trip and and talk about, you know, plankton in, in Smith's Lake and the fish there that feed on that plankton and how they appear um, at 100 tonnes per year going through the co-op just down the street. Ian, you have taught so many students about the ocean. You've taught postgraduate students how to study the ocean and entire ocean systems. You've published over 200 research articles about the ocean, all the way from the currents to the fish. Uh, what has been the most significant for you in that huge body of work? 
Yeah, wow, scary question. <laughs> um, it's been a journey. It still is a journey. And certainly having those students now um, who are your, your colleagues, um, it's funny, uh, when I went for promotion a few years ago and, and I said, uh, they said, well, how do you, how come you got all these students, you know, you, you supervise them, how do you do it? And I said, well, I don't really supervise my, these, these students because they're, they're young, they're smart, they're motivated. And Steinberg, who was on the committee at the time, he butted in and said, I think Ian means that he's a mentor. So I mentor all these guys and they become your friends, uh, your colleagues. And now they are in the US dealing with ways to stop boats running into um, leatherback turtles or, or, or seals. Um, they're in Western Australia dealing with um, mullets and, and tailor fisheries, or they're releasing young prawns into estuaries on the South Coast. And it's that is what gives me, gets me out of you know, bed and gives me a buzz is because I'm dealing with, or I have dealt with all these really cool, motivated, clever people who are going on to such great careers and doing stuff that, well, I'd like to do what they're doing. Um, it's so, it seems, because I'm just seeing all the easy, yeah. the, the nice bits, the, the outcome, not, not all the hard work that went in to get them to all these places, but it's just great to see that. And, and that's, for me, um, you know, if I got run over by a bus tomorrow, heaven forbid, I think yeah. I'd, I'd uh, be really uh, satisfied. I'd be really um, overwhelmed by what these students have achieved. I just sat here with Adriana Vergas uh, just yesterday, and she was listening to the uh, video presentations by, I think, 99 of the graduate students gave their one-minute minute thesis competition. And she said it's just uplifting to see the research that these all these students are doing. And it's so insightful. It's such depth. And it's just here within our little university. And this has been replicated at other universities around Australia, um, overseas. And just the pursuit of knowledge and to understand the world around us is just um, mind-blowing. It's just, uh, and it is, I think science and its pursuit is really part of our culture, part of our life. Just the way we think of music and art is, is culture, but science is as well, and the pursuit of knowledge. And it seems um, this universe has plenty of problems left to, to resolve and to understand. Um, we've got, we've, I'm just writing now a little bit about the history of some of the early uh, marine scientists who came to Australia 100 years ago and seeing what their insight then and how I've built on that now. And can you just possibly conceive in 100 years' time what they'll do with either Tracy's or Ian's research to build on that again um, as we go up to maybe 10 billion people on the planet um, trying to conserve biodiversity um, to still keep uh, a healthy uh, air and water and food uh, supplies and you know, secure that. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's based upon good science and, and, and passionate people to, to make, it, make the place a, a better place. Um, I, I think that's fantastic, Ian. What I've really loved in our chat today is connectivity keeps coming through, you know, how connected we are. We're connected by the EAC. Um, we're connected with our neighbours in the Pacific. You talked about some of your work that's going to take knowledge from here and, and share it with other places. Uh, we're connected to people who do different things, fishermen, scientists, policymakers. We're, we're all connected. Um, in the current climate with COVID, we're, we're looking closely 
closer to home than we have in a really long time. We're paying so much more attention to what we have here rather than than what's far away. Um, one last message for our listeners about what does the future hold? What what do you think is um, is the really you know exciting thing that's happening next that we need to be paying attention to right here? Well, the really exciting thing uh, probably by the end of this year will be a vaccine, <laughs> and that's <laughs> yeah. exciting. Um, and uh, I'm very confident of that uh, coming up very soon. So I think we should be, you know, we can't, you know, go to, we still got to wear our masks and social distance, all that kind of stuff for the next six to eight months, but it's really exciting. But um, <laughs> from my marine perspective, which I know is where your question was, I know, <laughs> um, the East Australian current is, um, is I think, a really exciting time because um, such as just this podcast itself, but also all the way through society to Canberra and to the politicians, they are investing in marine science. And so if you're a student that likes a bit of maths and a bit of science, um, really wants to make the world a better place, you look around, where are the companies and where are the governments investing? It's in marine science. So we have a big brand new research vessel, the Investigator, 93 meters long. Uh, we have um, a system of observing the ocean now with oceanographic moorings, with satellites, with these autonomous gliders that go through the ocean. We can put little uh, acoustic transmitters inside tuna and fish or cuttlefish, and that all gets assimilated into a central database so that we can look at a fish and say, oh, the marine bacteria that was at that location when that fish moved through because the zooplankton was at this particular uh, amount, because a satellite showed us that there was a frontal system of the East Australian current, it starts to make sense. And what is really exciting is that despite, you know, tough budgets and so on, we've got Antarctica. And the federal government has invested um, many hundreds of millions of dollars into a new icebreaker that gets delivered later this year to uh, we'll arrive in Hobart. And it really is to uh, consolidate Australia's investments in Antarctica, in that Southern Ocean, in the research, and they need people to populate it. And they need people who are just motivated, excited. Um, and I think the opportunities today are far more than when I was a student. So I think that you should be optimistic about the opportunities. Um, and also we're going to become a maritime nation. We will need to deal with the continental shelf. We will either generate electricity from the East Australian current. We're certainly going to be relying on our fish from the East Australian current. There'll be aquaculture potential, huge systems that the, the Norwegians are already putting in place that we'll have to have just for the reality of feeding ourselves and the neighbours in the, in, the, in the Pacific region and in the Southern Hemisphere. So I think um, just, I see within 10 years, the massive changes um, in the way we, we do business, the way we do, we live lives. We'll have artificial intelligence is, uh, is just around the corner and it's gonna be a complete upheaval for the job market to, to your traditional job markets of driving taxis and trucks and buses. But those people who are in the area that need to be innovative and to think outside the box and to look at the challenging marine environment, because you know, salt water is, 
is pretty unfriendly to electronics and and to uh, boats. But those are sort of the opportunities where um, people, young people, have tremendous opportunities. And um, I find it actually very exciting. I'm really interested in the next 10 years more than I am about the last 10 years, really. That's fantastic, Ian. That's such a lovely note to to end the, the podcast and the series on, that for young people coming up, through the ranks and finishing science at school or at uni that there's just so much potential in front of them and so much positivity as well. So thank you so much for your work and your time today celebrating the the blue spaces that we have. Thank you for listening to the Deep Blue On My Doorstep podcast. Don't forget to check out our website at events.unsw.edu.au where you'll find all the photographs from this podcast series featuring the beautiful places that we've been discussing and the organisms found in these blue spaces.